Here we are again, another episode of Redeemed Through His Blood. Welcome, everybody. My name's Scott Durfee, joined, as always, by my uh, uncle and good friend, partner in this uh, project here, Brother David Durfee. Say hey, Dave. Hey, good to be here. So, uh, listen, everybody, it was uh, great to have Doug and Emily Page as our guests on, as we did an interview last week, another great example of overcoming the effects of the fall through the atonement of Jesus Christ. If you haven't already done so, make sure you tune in and listen to that. And one more time, a big thank you to Doug and Emily Page for participating in that with us, Dave. Before we jump in, Scott, a couple of things on my mind. We talked so much about sin last time that it was uh, funny or maybe sad. I don't know if it was funny or sad. (laughs) <laughs> that our podcast was labeled explicit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that that was uh, a kind of an interesting uh I don't know if that's cuz we talked so much you we use the word sin so much or No, that's because I accidentally clicked oh, explicit. Okay, that was on your part. <laughs> yeah, that was on my side. Well, it kind of was explicit cuz we talked so much about sin and as I listened back to it, um you know, I don't make any apologies for anything that we said, but I did feel bad that I didn't say, uh, quote, Doctrine and Covenants, Section 1, you know, God cannot look upon sin with the least degree of allowance. And we could have quoted, we could have quoted Alma uh, that he abhors sin. And Nephi says the same thing. And maybe we didn't make the point strong enough as I listened to it, as I listened back to it, um, that we hate sin, even though we know that was part of God's plan. We hate it, and we should never become desensitized by it. But you know, Scott, it's so easy to say and so hard to do to hate sin but love the sinner. And that includes ourselves. Yeah. I mean, we just have to be more kind, more merciful, uh, more more uh, loving towards ourselves and others, even those who are unrepentant, even ourselves when we're unrepentant. But we have to hate the sin and never become desensitized by it. Uh, God doesn't become ever desensitized by it, and we shouldn't either. Uh, so we we have to reach a point where we abhor it, but we uh, always should understand it and that it was part of mortality, and it will always be part of our mortality. Um, and yet, we, we love the sinners. We love Christ, loved the sinners. You know that parable that we read? Again, I think it doesn't get read enough about the publican who beats up on his chest and, and you know cries out to God how unworthy he is, and then that, Pharisee who <laughs> says, I'm glad I'm not like that publican. Yeah, yeah, I'm glad I'm not like that publican. I'm glad I'm not like that sinner. Yeah. That homeless man I'm glad or that I, drug addict I'm, or exactly. whatever. I mean, there are just so many places you can go with that. Yeah. But, and and Jesus says, well, the great lesson is that if you abase yourself, you become exalted. If you exalt yourself. You become abased. You, you will be abased. And I think we need, just really need to think about that. And if there's one thing we need to be perfect at, 
it's seek to be perfected in our humility and meekness and our dependence, interdependence upon Jesus Christ and, and his atonement, which I'm so excited we get to talk about today. And the other thing is, uh, I got a call, interesting Saturday night, <coughs> from a former student several years ago, but I remembered him, and he called me from Idaho, and or not Idaho, Ohio, and he's working on a medical degree. He's going to be a doctor, and uh, he called me and wanted to review some of the principles of the class and talked about how much that course had influenced him and influenced his thinking. And now as a medical student, you know, he's in a, in a ward and he's, he was given an assignment to teach the youth and he wanted to, to, to remember and capture some of the things that he had learned in that course about the importance of identity, knowing who and whose we are and the the need that we have for the atonement of Jesus Christ and the powers of Christ. So it was fun to have a long conversation with a former student. And I just want to remind all of our listeners that this is a course. It's, it's We call it a podcast, but I hope that others will kind of see it as a course that was taught and designed several years ago. And and is now an institute course that is uh, taught throughout the world in institutes of religion and kind of follows along Elder Anderson's book called The Divine Gift of Forgiveness, which has become the student manual for the course. And uh, as we've talked about sin, and I'm ready to put that behind us, Scott, and talk about the atonement of Jesus Christ today. Interesting that you said you had that uh, student call you. I think that's so cool. I, I bet uh, I bet it takes courage maybe from some of those guys think, oh, I got to call Brother Durfee. I don't know if he'll, uh, because, you know, let's, let's be honest, these guys, uh, you know, been some of them have been to your classes on multiple, for multiple semesters. Yeah, some would take it five or six times. Yeah. And it wasn't easy for him to find me. He had to call several other teachers to kind of get my number, and uh, had to do some work to to chase me down. Yeah. And you, I know you've had that experience too. You're teaching that course. Well, yeah, yeah. Well, as a matter of fact, I you said Idaho because I actually had a student call me just yesterday from Idaho. <laughs> from Idaho. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and we had a very very sweet conversation around things too. You know, one of the this it wasn't this one, um, but it does happen because of the. Um, transparency that Deb and I, when we teach that class uh, about our own lives and about how the atonement of Jesus Christ has had its effects in our own lives and changing it completely, uh, we're, we're fairly transparent. We talk about that. We talk about our stories a little bit, you know, as so, so far as it's appropriate to do so in that class, etc. And I think by, and we give our, we give our phone number, we put it on the board and, and we extend an invitation and, and I've literally said, listen, my phone rings in the middle of the night and I've received phone calls in the middle of the night from students from that class, as well as alcoholics and drug addicts that I sponsor in AA. Like I have called my sponsor in the middle of the night at times when I'm just battling with the effects of the fall, right? Well, 
we talk about that, and, and it was a really uh, fun conversation that I had with the, the student that I had uh, taught yesterday. He called uh, mostly to find out if I knew about wiring for his motorcycle, but we had, we had some other uh, really uh, tender uh, conversation around some other things that were uh, topical to the class for sure. I love, though, and Deb and I taught last night our institute class, and, and we were about where we are in, in terms of our podcast. And, yeah, and we're, we were talking about the effects. We were talking of the fall. and and Because uh, we had a lot of new students with us last night, and so we couldn't just dive straight into the uh, <clears throat> blessings of the atonement or the events and the effects of the atonement of Jesus Christ. We had to kind of make that um, applicable in our lives by revisiting the fall. And as we did so, man, we just had some sweet experiences, testimonies and tears and just uh, people are being influenced for the better because of the uh, because of the atonement of Jesus Christ. And to know that, you know, we talked about sin last week. We talked about how it can tip us over. You, I, I'm so grateful that you said what you just said this morning about how we should, we, we're, we're not proponents of sin. I mean, we, we understand sin, and we understand that, uh, you know, it is part of our mortal existence, but we're not here to propagate sin. We're here to propagate the, the, the uh, anecdote to sin, the, uh, the atonement of Jesus Christ. But I, so I'm glad you brought that up this morning uh, and how important that is, because I love now, and we'll do that right now, I love now that we're moving into the most important eternal doctrine that uh, anyone has ever known. The doctrine of Christ. And, and uh, you know, there's no greater need, Scott, no greater need in the world. And I know you, you could sense that in your students, and I sensed it in you describing your class last night. Uh, there's no greater need that young adults have in the church, that older adults have in the church, and everybody in between, than to understand who they are, whose they are, and when I, when I say that, I, I mean sons and daughters of God and sons and daughters of Adam and Eve. And n- no greater need than to understand their need for the atonement of Jesus Christ and then to increase their faith and their understanding, knowledge, in the atonement of Jesus Christ and learn uh, how to access the powers available to us through the atonement of Jesus Christ. That is singular, the greatest need in the church and in the world, really. And, and you can tell, you can tell as you teach it, right, that they just, their spirits just are like sponges, and they just soak it up. Yeah. And it's not just because they need it here. It's because we had learned the importance of it in the pre-existence before we were ever born. Yeah, and it's a remembering. Deb talked about that to our our kids last. Our kids, we really see them that way. I know you used to too, but we really see them that way. But Deb talked that talked about that to our kids last night. That you know what we are going to be talking about is really not a learning so much as it is a remembering. Yeah. Because we knew this doctrine, and this yeah. doctrine, not only did we know it, we subscribed to it fully, as we've talked about, as is evidenced by our existence in mortality, right? Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's such an exciting time, really, a time of the year right now that we're in, Scott, to be able to talk about this, because we just started the uh, Lent season. Anyway, it's an exciting time of the year, uh, Scott, uh, where... 
the great uh, Christian traditions that lead up to Easter. I've always loved uh, when I moved back to Minnesota and got close to so many great people who were good Lutherans and Catholics, and and this is such a special time for them. And I wish that we would make it a little more special in our own traditions. In fact, I'm so excited, Scott, about the church's announcement to uh, have a special Easter sacrament meeting and to just have sacrament meeting. And it's always kind of been in... As, as I don't know, it's kind of been uh, hard for me to think that we make such a big deal and we do so great celebrating Christmas, but we don't do so great celebrating Easter. And it's just really exciting that the First Presidency and the Quarter of the Twelve have announced that, that Easter Sunday will be a little more significant and that we'll just have a special Easter program that day and go home and be able to spend it with our families and think about Jesus and celebrate it, Easter. And I hope that uh, as we get closer to that, we'll talk more about that event and the resurrection and and maybe traditions that families can have to make the most of that. But Lent is a time, you know, it started, they, uh, they don't know exactly when it started, but around 400 A.D., they start this tradition of uh, 40 days before Easter, uh, really 40 days before Gethsemane, the night right. of Gethsemane, yeah. when the atonement begins, that 40 days before that, they have what they call Ash Wednesday, which was recently, and they put uh, ashes, they'll palm leaves, they burn them, and they get some ashes and put them on their forehead, and, and uh, oftentimes in the symbol of the cross and i i think it's such a great tradition because there's there's sacrifice involved in that you know they 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 they're not supposed to eat meat they're not supposed to drink wine they're supposed to fast uh, pay tithings and sacrifice and whatever sacrifices they can make to be able to prepare themselves for uh, easter week not just easter easter week and I, I, th- I think this is such a great time for us as members of the Church of Jesus Christ to do the same thing and to begin to think now about, about Easter and what we can do to prepare for Easter. And so our podcast today will certainly lend itself to that. We started this podcast a year ago on Easter week. That's right. And now it's so exciting that we're doing a second season and can talk about events leading up to Easter week. And um, anyway, that's what that's what I hope that we can accomplish today. I, I'm just so excited about all that Easter is that we are really coming into it. You know, we can see the Earth around us is going through its process, its season. Uh, there will be a rebirth of two for planet Earth here pretty soon, especially, you know, if you live in areas like we live. Yeah, we're, <laughs> we're, we're tired covered. of winter. We are the, covered. The, the we dead have, of winter. 
a huge blanket of snow. We got another 14 inches or more last night. Not last night, the night before here. And uh, it just so, but, but we'll see that rebirth coming. And as we see that rebirth coming to the earth, that's a good reminder to me, you know, as I see those little buds pop out, as yeah. I start to smell the smell of fresh cut hay, which is just so special to me, you know, and, 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 and all of those other barn smells that start coming with, yeah. with uh, you know, this time of year. It's just, I, I just am so grateful for that and for that association but what makes that association so deep is the things that we're going to talk about yep starting today well let's uh, let's jump in uh, understanding understanding the fall and understanding our need for the atonement of Jesus Christ there are two major aspects of the atonement of Jesus Christ that we'll discuss in our course the first is the events of the atonement, and the second are the effects, is the effects of the atonement. There are, there are four events that I would like to talk about first. We'll, this may take a week or two for us to talk about this and kind of pre, uh, a prelude to Easter, an Easter season, and then we'll talk about the effects of the atonement of Jesus Christ and the powers that flow out of his atonement. And before we jump into the actual four events, I just want to um, draw on a few quotes from the brethren in regards to the atonement itself uh, and how central it is, not only to God's plan, but how central it should be in our worship and in our own personal lives. Um, one of my favorites is Elder Boyd K. Packer, who said, The atonement of Jesus Christ is the very root of Christian doctrine. You may know much about the gospel as it branches out from there, but if you only know the branches, and those branches do not touch that root of the atonement of Jesus Christ, if they have been cut free from that truth, there will be no life, nor substance, nor redemption in them. Well, I, I really love that, Scott, and if I can just kind of paraphrase it, if we, if we don't understand the, the doctrine of the atonement of Jesus Christ and it's not the center of everything that we do, and if we, if we teach or do things and it's not somehow connected, any doctrine or anything that we teach, if it's not connected to the atonement of Jesus Christ, it's dead. There's no substance. There's no redemption. We're, we're probably wasting our time teaching it. I used to tell uh, when I was the director of the Institute at Utah Valley University, I would, uh, I would tell our teachers, if, if you teach any lesson that is not tied to the atonement of Jesus Christ or the atonement of Jesus Christ cannot be attached to your lesson and it's not an important part of your lesson, then why are you teaching it? It'll be dead. There's no life. There's no substance. There's no redemption. Even if, you know, we had this great class on the Restoration, and there was a lesson in there to help help our students to understand some 
some of the challenges and problems of our history, and one of those is the Mountain Meadows Massacre, and, and uh, I would use that as an example. If you teach the Mountain Meadows Massacre, and you can't figure out how to attach the Atonement of Jesus Christ to that lesson, then maybe you shouldn't teach it. The Atonement of Jesus Christ should be part of everything that we teach in the church. It should be part of everything we teach in our homes. Uh, it should be a part of our daily lives. Look unto me in every thought. Doubt not, fear not, behold the wounds. He implores us. Anyway, Scott, the atonement of Jesus Christ has to be attached to everything that's important to our life or it will die. And if it's not attached to anything that we do or or if it's not attached to the atonement of Jesus Christ, then there will be no eternity in it. There will be no substance, no redemption. So I just think it's it's critical that we begin by understanding the centrality and the importance of the focus on the atonement of Jesus Christ in our personal lives and church life and our everyday life. The atonement of Jesus Christ can literally permeate every part of our lives if we make that our focus and if we allow that to. And if we do anything different from that, then we will not have the administration of the atonement of Jesus Christ at work in our lives to the degree. It's at work in all of our lives without effort to a degree, without effort. But to the degree that we want it to be effective in our lives, to free us from sin, to free us from the bondage of self, to free us from the effects of the, the physical death, the, our mental problems, our physical problems, our, our emotional problems, to be free from all of that then, uh, it sounds like we really should be focusing on the atonement of Jesus Christ and allow it and, 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 in fact, encourage it to permeate every aspect of our lives. Amen. Amen, Scott. And I, I just don't think you can uh, exaggerate that. You know, President David O. McKay used to always say, and this is kind of a paraphrase, what, whatever you sincerely in your heart think of Christ... Jesus Christ, and I'm going to add, and his atonement, his birth, his life, his death, and the atonement. It will ultimately determine who you are, what you do, and how you live. I, I believe that. I believe that is literal. Therefore, I hope that in our discussion we can help uh, ourselves, our families, and others to, to make it uh, more of a forefront thought in our minds, in our prayers, uh, in, our, in our lives. Uh, my, one of my favorite uh, quotes from Preach My Gospel, Scott, is the, so right on page two of Preach My Gospel, as your understanding of the atonement of Jesus Christ grows, your desire... To share the gospel will increase. And if, if you'll allow me just to tweak that, I want to repeat that quote and just make one small change. So this is from Preach My Gospel, page 2, with a one-word change. As your understanding of the atonement of Jesus Christ grows, your desire to live the gospel will increase. 
I know that's true from my personal experience and from all the experiences I, I've had in any positions that I've served in the church, in my own uh, family and their lives, I, I know that's true. And one last quote before we get into the events of the atonement and the events that lead up to it is uh, Elder Richard G. Scott, who said, Pondering the grandeur of the atonement of Jesus Christ evokes the most profound feelings of awe, immense gratitude, and deep humility. Those impressions can provide you powerful motivation to keep his commandments and consistently repent of errors for greater peace and happiness. I know that the greatest motivation, the greatest source of motivation in our lives to live a life of a disciple of Jesus Christ the greatest motivation is to understand his sacrifice. To understand what the Father sacrificed in giving us his Son. And to understand the love of Christ in keeping the commandments of his Father, his love for his Father, his obedience, and his love for us to be willing to lay down his life. I think the my my favorite scripture in the New Testament, Scott, is John three sixteen and seventeen, which says, "For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life." And then verse seventeen says, yeah, yeah. "For for God sent His Son into the world not to condemn the world." but that the world through him might be saved or redeemed. And I, I just know that if we would focus on that truth, um, we would have greater hope, we would have greater peace, we would have greater, greater joy in our lives. There was, a, there was a time when we were having, when I was serving as a branch president in the MTC, and we had this rash of disobedience, and uh, some missionaries, unfortunately, were um, being sent home because of some of the things that were going on. And anyway, it wasn't very many, but it was more than should have been. And uh, I remember our, our MTC president sharing this story about him. Uh, being troubled by this, and he started to make it a matter of fasting and prayer, and so he was fasting and he was praying, and and it was he said on Christmas Eve early in the morning, when he was awakened by a by a, a voice or a prompting, and he and he wakes up and he hears like a voice in his mind a thought, an impression. Gratitude is the beginning of desire. You see, Scott, his, his great question was that he was praying and fasting about was, why do some missionaries have the desire to be obedience, obedient? And why do some not have the desire to be obedient and live the gospel? What is the difference? Desire is the difference. 
how can I help these missionaries to have the desire to live the gospel, to be obedient? And this was his answer. Gratitude is the beginning of desire. And he went to grab a, a pen and a paper to write this down. He's sitting on the edge of his bed. And as he writes it down, gratitude is the beginning of desire. He thinks, gratitude for what? And his mind is then filled with a vision of the atonement of Jesus Christ and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And from that point on, we witnessed miracles at the Missionary Training Center because he gave us instructions that we needed to, the number one thing we were to do in the branch was to help missionaries to understand, appreciate, and feel greater gratitude for the atonement of Jesus Christ. And we not only saw increased repentance, but we saw increased obedience. Yeah. And probably uh, motivation and attitude and everything that comes along with it. I think that uh, you know, if there was, if we were going to going to approach today's podcast with our own question, our own question might be similar, right? How do we increase our desire? And, and then we've received now a revelation to that question. So now, how do we increase our gratitude if we pay attention to not just what we're hearing? Definitely more importantly than what we're hearing, if we'll pay attention to what we're feeling as we're hearing these things, our gratitude will grow, our desire along with it, and as we do so, we'll just recognize our own sense of increased peace and faith in our own lives as we do it. Yeah, so thank you, Scott. And I, I used to tell my students that if you ever find yourself waning in your desire to live the gospel, if you find that you're kind of weak or that the motivation isn't quite there to keep the commandments or to repent of our sins and mistakes and errors, I can without exception tell you that what is missing in your life is the level of gratitude for the atonement of Jesus Christ that you need in order to make those changes happen. I, I, I mean, Scott, gratitude, this is President James E. Faust, a talk that he gave many years ago, which I'll never forget. Gratitude is a principle of salvation. Hmm. And without it, you cannot be saved. So I, as we as we launch into the atonement of Jesus Christ, the number one result we hope for is not just to know the events or the effects right. or the what happened here and what happened there and find an interesting new idea or two. The number one result of this should be that we are more grateful that we understand a little bit more about the reality of what was given. And as we experienced, as we experienced that, that uh, gift of the atonement of Jesus Christ and receive it, 
that we are that we be filled with more gratitude than we've ever been filled with before. So let's uh, let's talk about the four events of the atonement of Jesus Christ, uh, and I'll, I'll list them, and and this will kind of be our outline, and we'll see how far we get today, and what we don't finish uh, today, we'll we'll do next week. The first is the sinless life. The second is Gethsemane, the Garden of Gethsemane. The, the third is the cross and the crucifixion, what happens on the cross. And the fourth is his death and his resurrection, the, the empty tomb. So again, one is sinless life, two is Gethsemane, three is Golgotha, and four is the, the empty tomb. Those are the, the four events and places that the atonement of Jesus Christ is, is fulfilled. The center of the whole plan, of the, the whole plan of the Father and the plan of redemption. I, I think one of the, the greatest events that we underappreciate is the sinless life that he led and how difficult that was and what a sacrifice he made in never sinning, Scott. He never sinned. He never gave heed to temptations. It's, it's astounding to me. And he did not don his bulletproof vest of godhood to reduce or lighten or to deflect any temptation in his life. Uh, he felt greater temptation than any of us will feel, and he felt all temptation. Um, yeah, and, and to its uh, largest degree. To a greater degree than any of us ever will. Yeah. And yeah. I love this quote by, by C.S. Lewis on, on that idea. He says, this is in Mere Christianity, page 142. No man knows how bad he is till he has tried very hard to be good. A silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it can be. After all, you find out the strength of the German army by fighting against it, not by giving in. You find out the strength of a wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us, and I'll just add, or the full extent of the fall in all of us, until we try to fight it. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, 
is the only man who knows to the full extent what temptation means. He is the only complete realist. Well, I, I love that, and I believe that. I believe that, that uh, Jesus Christ felt, to the nth degree, more temptation than any of us will ever experience. And I, I love how the Scriptures teach. My, one of my favorites in Doctrine and Covenants, section 20, where it talks about, and he never gave heed. He was tempted, and he never gave heed. Wow. But not giving heed doesn't necessarily always stop the temptation. I mean, I know that after the 40 days in the wilderness being with God, that Satan came in full force and that uh, Satan was allowed to tempt him and to try him. And, and probably Satan personally, I know that there's lots of devils in our lives and some are even in the 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 form of friends and and other mortals i don't sometimes i don't even think i need a devil to tempt me to do wrong all i need is a suggestion from a good friend to do wrong and i'm all over it and uh, so i <laughs> satan directly personally attacked him and had others evil men attack him uh, all in the effort to try to get him to just commit one little sin, dwell on one little thought too long. I know he had, he would have had evil thoughts, uh, temptations come to us in many forms, right? But he never gave heed to it. He never gave attention to it. He never, he never dwelled on it. He never gave in to it. I know he would have felt all of the temptations of fear and, and lust and pride and all the inappropriate emotions that we feel and, and all of the direct actions that he could have taken to sin, to be unkind, to, 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 do, you know, to do all of the bad that we know. And he sacrificed that, Scott. That was, that was perhaps, I mean... That was an amazing sacrifice, and it would have been extremely difficult, and he did not use his godhood to deflect it or to lessen it. We have to understand that. I think so many people think, well, he was Jesus. Yeah. Well, he was a god. <clears throat> if we really contemplate and consider, it gives us even deeper gratitude for what he did. You know, we don't often talk about, I mean, I don't ever remember in a Sunday school class or in a seminary class or, you know, anything like that, talking about the temptations that Jesus faced, you know, and, and we know sinless, we know that his perfection uh, came as uh, with the resurrection and all those other things. We've kind of alluded to that in the past, and that's a bit of a semantics, but but to live a sinless life, you know, we I think, I've thought, and I think so often many of us take so for granted, well, he was Jesus. That would be easy for a guy like Jesus. But uh, 
I don't think it, it, there was anything easy about that. I think that there was definitely some some um, some power that he gained that he drew from from his father, uh, and some power and the ability that he actually had to overcome that was because of his innate divine ship, his innate godship, godhood. But I, I don't, I, I think that, uh, you know, we shouldn't, and I'm challenging our listeners, don't just gloss over this. Don't just listen and think, oh, yeah, that's cool. Really contemplate. I think it's important that we really contemplate this aspect of the atonement of Jesus Christ. Well, I don't think we can begin to imagine how badly Satan attacked him, knowing that if he committed one sin, then the rest of his sacrifice in life is not to redeem us. It will only be to redeem him. The vicarious aspect of the atonement of Jesus Christ would have been destroyed if he would have sinned. It took a sinless lamb, a, a sinless person, a lamb without blemish. Only he could pay the penalty make the punishment, ransom us because he never sinned. He could offer his works and his life in behalf of us and become our mediator and our advocate because he never sinned. And Satan knew that. Satan realized that, and Satan knew if I can just get him to sin. If I can just get him to ponder or desire to do this or to do that. I, in the, I, t- I turned to the Doctrine and Covenants, section tw- uh, 20, verse 22. He suffered temptations, but gave no heed unto them. Paul wrote in Hebrews that he, he suffered temptations of all kinds, of all kinds. Uh, so he suffered he suffered temptations. I, I, I just don't think we can really understand the atonement of Jesus Christ and appreciate it if we don't more fully appreciate this aspect of his sacrifice. Right. The effort that he, that he um, made and the suffering that he experienced in the temptations of his life, this, this sinless, holy being being thrown into a world of hell and of all places of, among the people who were the, the most hellish and the, the, the most wicked, as Brigham Young and others have taught, the most wicked of all people who have ever been on the earth. The only people who would ever crucify him not only on this world, but all worlds. And Jesus was thrown into that place and would have experienced directly and indirectly all of the temptations, but never sinned. I think that when we think about sinless life, when we think about Gethsemane, Golgotha, and the resurrection— it's easy for all of us, I, I honestly think, probably most of us, if not all of us, to be super grateful for what happened in 
Gethsemane, to be super grateful for what happened on the cross, to be very grateful for what happened because of the resurrection. But I don't know, Dave, that we've spent much contemplation around our gratitude of that sinless life. That was difficult. That that was beyond human capacity. So was Gethsemane. So was the cross. And so was the resurrection. And, And as much as those other three were... Yep. Impossible, beyond human capacity to achieve, yes. so also was the sinless life. Yes. And, and our gratitude, for that wasn't easy. I, you think that's easy? Try living a sinless hour, yes. right? Uh, right. And, and it, it would be impossible for us. We don't have that divine um, uh, fathership like he did directly. Right. I mean, we have it, but, we, but not directly like he did. And it did help him, but it was nonetheless difficult. I think that our appreciation and our gratitude for that alone, that sinless life alone, I, I just honestly don't think that the, uh, there's ever been a time when I've sat at the sacrament table and really contemplated and was grateful for that sinless life well, uh, and, until we'll, we started studying this. Yeah, I hope that we'll, we'll think about that when we next time we partake of the sacrament right. is that we'll appreciate his sinless life. The fact that he never gave heed to it, Scott, did not lessen it or make it just go away. No. Um, he felt it all, all temptation. And uh, that leads us up. We'll, we'll review maybe the week of Easter, all of the events of his last week. But the second now event of the atonement of Jesus Christ is what happens in Gethsemane. And uh, Gethsemane, I think that in some, some ways we sing of it in our church. We certainly understand it better because of the restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ God. I know that as a people that we are really uh, that we really do a great job focusing on what happened in Gethsemane um, and and I think that's wonderful that we do all of that but I think sometimes we don't we think that he suffered for all of our sins in Gethsemane and that all of the suffering in Gethsemane that was it well that that wasn't it you know it was the suffering to not sin going into Gethsemane. And it was the suffering coming out of Gethsemane that continued and actually reoccurred on the cross, which we'll talk about. That's the third event. But uh, So he goes into Gethsemane, and I uh, nobody really understands other churches or religions, Scott, what happened in Gethsemane. In fact, if you, if you have a good friend who's a member of another church... And if you were to get into this conversation, and if you were to say something like this, I used to tell my students to fill in the blank. In a conversation with a friend, if you were to say, I am so grateful for Jesus Christ as my Savior and Redeemer, who was willing to bleed from, fill in the blank, and they just, rolls off their tongue, you know, my students. Every poor. Every poor for my sins. 
And I would say, where do, where do you get that? Where do you learn that? It's not in the Bible. We're so, we're so blessed, Scott. There's only two places in the scriptures where it describes in more detail uh, what happens in Gethsemane, and, and that's in King Benjamin's vision given to him by an angel. Angel walks him through it. And uh, we have that precious scripture in Mosiah chapter 3, verse 7. And maybe, maybe, Scott, maybe we should go there and read it. I, as we get into some of these events now, I think it's really helpful for us to just read the word and uh, not to just paraphrase it. So, yeah, Mosiah chapter 3, verse 7. I've got it right here. And lo, he shall suffer temptations and pain. Yeah, of- did you hear that? Yeah. Yeah. There it is again. I know, right? Suffer temptations. Yeah. And, and it says suffer temptations. It yeah. doesn't say he experienced them. We forget that that's part of his suffering too. Yeah. Right? Right. Okay. Uh, seven. Uh, Mosiah 3, 7. And lo, he shall suffer temptations and pain of body and hunger, thirst and fatigue, even more than man can suffer except it be unto death. For behold, blood cometh from every poor. So great shall be his anguish for the wickedness and abominations of his people. That, I believe, is the first place where Joseph Smith learned that he bled from every poor. Now, there, there is a scripture in the Bible, in, in Luke. Luke comes the closest to describing what happened in Gethsemane. It's interesting that, that John doesn't say really much about it. Matthew and Mark give us, a, give us an account, which we'll look at in a, here in a moment. But Luke comes probably the closest to giving us some detail. And it's in Luke 22, Scott, verses 40 through 44. This is obviously when they had gotten to the garden. And he says, and when he, and when he was at the place, he said unto them, Pray that ye enter not into temptation. And he was withdrawn, withdrawn from them about a stone's cast and kneeled down and prayed. So he's withdrawn from Peter, James, and John about a stone's cast, takes them into the garden with him and, and continue saying, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And there appeared an angel unto him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in, an, being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was as it were great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Okay, so note, verse 44, it says, his sweat was, as it were, like great drops of blood falling to the ground. Well, one day in Minneapolis, Minnesota, I had a little time one afternoon, and uh, I had been pondering this verse, and I wanted to kind of know how, what other, how other Christians uh, saw it or how they would interpret it. And I know there are, there are different interpretations of it out there. And anyway, so I... I'm just reporting my experience. Um, we had yellow pages back then, uh, the phone book. And uh, I went to the churches, and I started to call all these different churches, major Christian churches in the Minneapolis-St. Paul metropolitan area. And I must have called about 30 that afternoon, and I just said, this is what I said. So I have a theological question. Is there a pastor, minister, priest, 
that I could uh, visit with about a theological question, and the secretary would usually transfer me if, if the minister was in, and, and uh, I would say, hey, I've, I'm reading Luke 22. What is going on in verse 44? What's happening in verse 44? Then I would read it from the King James Version. They may have the King James Version or another version, and we would have a little discussion about it. And, uh, and they would say, usually, that Jesus was suffering so great that, that the, the pressure of paying for our sins was so great that there were a few drops of blood that appeared on his forehead. Or that, they would say, that his sweat, and, and this was the majority of them, Scott, mm-hmm. that he was sweating profusely, and that his sweat was symbolic of the blood that he would shed on the cross. The majority of them answered that way. Some of them recognized that there was maybe a few drops of blood. And, you know, there have been some medical cases. I know that the, the Mayo Clinic actually reports a couple of these, of medical cases where pain is so great that an in, individuals may actually sweat a few drops of blood. They call it hematidrosis is the medical uh, the medical term for that, bleeding from your pore. Um, but no, no one understands. No one understands that Jesus bled from every pore, that basically his circulatory system somehow collapsed and uh, literally his burst and blood oozed from every pore, the constriction of of the vessels and the veins and capillaries in his body, the, the pain, the anguish, the pressure. I, I know that he chose Gethsemane because of the, the meaning of the word, which is the press, the oil press. And this is where they would, you know, take take olives and they would press them and they would crush the olives, including the pit of the olive with these stones and oil would ooze and it it was a perfect symbolic place of the suffering that would be pressed the pain that would be pressed the stress and pressure that would be put upon jesus christ as he began to experience complete spiritual death as he began to experience all of the consequences of sin in the world, in the worlds, all of this. And for three hours, for three hours, this goes on, and he cries out, of course, you know, if it be willing, let this cup pass from me. And an angel is sent. An angel is sent, and I love Elder McConkie's uh, belief that that was Adam, and the, Michael, the archangel, who was sent to Jesus to strengthen him. And it's so interesting that here we have the individual who brought the fall and sin into the world, Adam, and, and 
he appears to strengthen Jesus in paying for all of the sin of the world and for all the consequences of all the sin of the world and to pay for the spiritual death, to feel it and overcome it and to feel, you know, begin to feel the physical pains and sicknesses and death that would eventually come to him on the cross. Uh, anyway, Adam comes as an angel to strengthen him. So I, I, I know it's incomprehensible. We can't begin to comprehend really the suffering that he went through there, Scott. But uh, I don't know. It's, it's overcoming to me, really, the, when I think of it, the humility and the meekness that comes over me thinking that I contributed to that. You know, um, like, again, President Faust would say, he asked in a conference talk, I wonder how many drops he bled for me. And then he wrote a whole song on that. And um, anyway, Scott, I, I don't, I know we can't comprehend. We don't have all the all the answers to the questions about how was it possible or how did he do it or, or you know, we don't know everything, but we do know that he bled from every pore. And the other place in the scriptures where we learn that, which is a revelation given to the prophet Joseph Smith, actually a revelation to Martin Harris through the prophet Joseph Smith, in Doctrine and Covenants section 19, verses 16 through 19. For behold, I, God, have suffered these things for all, that they might not suffer if they would repent. But if they would not repent, they must suffer even as I, which suffering caused myself, even God, the greatest of all, to tremble because of pain and to bleed at every pore and to suffer both body and spirit and would that I might not drink the bitter cup and shrink. Nevertheless, glory be to the Father, and I partook and finished my preparations under the children of men. Wow. The, those verses right there, Scott, are worth the whole Doctrine and Covenants and all the revelations received by the prophet Joseph Smith. I love the phrase, you know, bleed at every pore to suffer body and spirit. I believe his greatest suffering was spiritual. Yeah even as terrible, as awful as you can. You can't even imagine the, the physical to bleed from every pore, but the real pain was, I think, in the spirit to, for this sinless God to feel all of the sins. Scott, I know we're sinners, but just think of all the sins of all the world. Repented of or not, Scott, pressing upon him, him feeling the effects 
of all of the sins committed in this world and others. Think of that. Pressing upon this sinless being. I mean, I think most of his physical suffering would have been caused by his spiritual suffering. And then he says, and I would that I might not drink the bitter cup and shrink. The bitter cup. Think about that a lot when I go to the temple. You know, when I go to the temple, two places where we should be thinking about that and there are two different times in the endowment and I think about that and I look at that and I think wow the cup the bitter cup and glory be to the father he gives all the glory to the father (laughs) this humility is meekness and then he just simply says and I partook and finished my preparations. Well, I'm just so grateful, Scott, that, for well, I'm grateful for Jesus mostly, but I'm also really grateful for the restoration that we can understand to a greater degree, more specifically with greater power, what really happened in Gethsemane before he ever gets to the cross and suffers again on the cross, which we'll talk about next time. I love that uh, you pointed out suffered both body and spirit, and that really comes full circle to where we were last week and even at the beginning of this week when we talked about the effects of the fall. The effects of the fall affected us both body and spirit. We have a spirit separation and we have a body separation, and because of that separation, both become imperfect. Because of Christ's sinless life, his life had not become unperfect. It was st- had it remained pure. It had remained godlike in all ways. Uh, again, the perfection came later as the uh, resurrection took place. But however, his preparation through his sinless life, so that he could answer the call of mm-hmm. our separation, body and spirit. Mm-hmm. And he suffered that too. Last night in our institute class, we spent a great deal of time talking about the effects of the fall, bodily and spiritual. And he suffered those things, both body and spirit for us. I am so grateful. I can't even begin to express. Words will never in my life be able to express the, the gratitude and the appreciation that I have for what he did there that day. Uh, among all the other things that we're going to talk about and all the other things that we've already talked about. But what he did there then, you know, I've often, and I think maybe prompted by Elder Faust uh, many, many years ago, but I, I often remember, even in my not-so-sinless life, especially when my life was anything but sinless, I often even contemplated, even in my sin, Dave, when I was uh, in my full-blown addiction and my full-blown alcoholism, we've talked about how um, our covenants can be so strong that sometimes uh, they can even provide pull on us, even in those times, and and it did on me, and I often thought about that. I often thought, uh, you know, and great guilt would come with it, which was fine, um, and, and and sometimes even shame, which isn't fine. But the, the guilt would come sometimes because I would contemplate that. I wonder how much of 
his blood was because of me. Mm-hmm. I wonder how much of his suffering was ultimately because of me. Because I know he suffered the sins and the pains of the world, but he suffered them for us individually. And I think we it's hard for us sometimes to remember that. I think it's easy for us to just think, well, he just paid for sin. He paid for sin categorically. He paid for sin systemically. He paid for sin in all of these ways. No, he paid for sin for Scott Durfee individually. He paid for sin and all of the troubles that come up with that for David Durfee individually and all of our brothers and sisters and, and everybody else. Um, that, that was done individually for us. I'm grateful to know that today. Well, the, the phrase that I love, which is, again, unique to Restoration uh, Scripture, is we refer to it, Nephi does, and then Amulek, it is an infinite right. atonement. All time, all worlds, all sins, by an infinite being. Repented of or not. It's infinite. But I love Elder Maxwell's, including the word, it is infinite and intimate. Yeah. The atonement of Jesus Christ you're right, Scott, is very intimate. Uh, you know, I've been impressed and have studied multiple times throughout my life the phrase, sins of all the world. And it's, it's, it's in the uh, New Testament once, and in the Book of Mormon several times, and in the Doctrine and Covenants as well. Sins of all the world. I asked Brother Matthews about that, and uh, said, does that include sins unrepented of? And he believed that it did. I believe that as well. Uh, that even the sons of perdition will someday, all the sins of all the world, someday, even if they have no desire to repent, they'll, they'll know, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is the Christ and that he suffered for them. And then they'll—it's up to them if they reject it, and refuse him, and refuse to receive the price that he paid, the ransom he made. But I—I I agree with you. It is intimate. It is also infinite. And uh, grateful that we've had the opportunity today to talk uh, to talk about it. I think next week there's some more things about Gethsemane that we'll we'll uh, talk about and conclude that part, that event, and then we'll get into the, the cross, death, and resurrection for next week. And, Scott, I, I just want to say, you know, even talking about it, you and me being here talking about it, it, it brings, it always affects my spirit yeah. and humbles me, and it just, it just brings me this deep uh, humility, and, uh, and I know that's, you know, the spirit, humility is a gift of the spirit. And uh, I'm thankful that I felt that today and pray that myself, my family, and others will not not just acknowledge it and not just be uh, disciples of Jesus, but be deeply grateful, deeply grateful for these events of the atonement of Jesus Christ which I'm so thankful for. We started our podcast today talking about how gratitude um, is the beginning of desire. 
And I think that we, I think that as we contemplate this, as we listen to the things that we've talked about, as we feel, typically we extend invitations. And I think we've extended one or two invitations through this podcast, you know, for example, uh, to contemplate next time your, your gratitude, next time you're sitting at the sacrament table, for example. But I think that the Spirit is the one that will provide invitations this week. Mm-hmm. I have felt that too. And I have felt, inv- I have felt invited um, by the Spirit to do certain things in my life because of my gratitude for the atonement of Jesus Christ. It increases my desire, and the more gratitude I have, the more desire seems to come. The more desire I have, the more grateful I am, and I feel this helix as it lifts me closer and closer to Him because my desire is to serve Him, to do what He would do, to have that contrite spirit where my will is swallowed up by His. Uh, and, and it's because of his great love for each of us that that desire and that gratitude comes. Hey, I'm grateful to be here today. I, above all things, above literally all things, I'm grateful for the atonement of Jesus Christ in my life. And I'm grateful for the atonement of Jesus Christ in the lives of those that I love. And I'm grateful for the, li- the atonement of Jesus Christ in even the lives of those that I find difficult to love because it is through that and through him that even that can be reconciled in my life through my effort because of the constant companionship and the administration of the Holy Spirit as it it brings the atonement to my life and to the lives of others. Thanks for being with us today. We are so grateful for this opportunity. We hope that you sense, we hope that you feel, and we hope that you have been uplifted and benefited by our efforts and being here today. Uh, Thanks for being with us. We'll see you again next week.